Federal agencies spend more on grants than they do on procurements, way more. The Government Accountability Office finds that spending could be more transparent and could stand a lot more oversight than it gets now. For more, we turn to the GAO's Director of Strategic Issues, Jeff Arkin. Jeff, good to have you back. Thanks for having me again, Tom. And let's talk about first the scope of dollars that the government spends on grants. I have to admit, I had a number in my mind for several years about roughly where it was. But when I looked at this report, I was blown away. It is a big number. Uh, Federal grants play a very important role in funding our national priorities, uh, such as responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. At the same time, federal grants represent a substantial financial commitment. For example, in fiscal year 2022, the federal government provided about $1.2 trillion in financial assistance to to states, localities, tribal and territorial governments, and, and most of that's through grants. And to put that in perspective, that assistance accounted for about one out of every five federal dollars spent in 2022. And that money must have come partially from the bills other than normal appropriations because the entire normal appropriation is only $1.5 trillion. Yeah, that's right. There has been a fairly large increase since 2019 due to the response to the COVID pandemic. This is not really a report at any particular agency, but kind of an overview survey of where things stand in grant making. But it seems like it's getting more complex as a result of the growth in numbers and the multiplicity of programs. Does GAO expect that to kind of be the status now forever? There definitely has been a lot of growth in the number of programs, the diversity of grants available to recipients like state and local governments, and that does bring some complexity. Part of that is there's a lot of variation in the ways that different federal agencies administer these grant programs, and that can be challenging for potential recipients and ongoing recipients. And has grant making overtaken the agency's abilities to control it and have oversight over it? Do they have the controls in place they need? What have you found there? Uh, It's definitely a challenge. Uh, Controls are extremely important. There's always that balance between how to manage burden for recipients, but at the same time, ensure that there's adequate oversight on the part of federal governments, that the money's being distributed and spent according to the law and then the rules of all the various agencies. You know, we have found some areas where there have been challenges. One example of that is improper payments, which is payments that are made either that should never have been made or made in the incorrect amount. That's been a persistent problem for the federal government since 2003. Uh, Improper payments have totaled almost $2.4 trillion cumulatively. Uh, This most recent year, 2022, the estimate was $247 billion. So it's a significant amount of money. Yeah. And controls need to scale along with the spending, I guess, is my question. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's incredibly important for agencies to have uh, adequate internal controls in place to monitor these grant programs, because it is, again, it's a lot of money going out. It's being implemented not by the federal government, but by other recipients. Uh, but the federal government and these individual agencies do have responsibilities to make sure the funds are being spent appropriately. Yeah, and that transparency question then gets into being able to see into those entities. Well, it's really two questions. One is, can the public find out who's getting grants and by which agency and how much? But then there is the question of whether the government can see into the activities of the grant recipients and where the money goes from that initial stage. So let's talk about maybe transparency in terms of the public being able to track this. Sure. 
Uh, one important way that the public uh, can track money sent to grant recipients is through usaspending.gov, which is the federal government's public website that shows where money is being spent, which agency, which recipient. And there's been a lot of progress over the years in terms of having that information available. There's been some progress with agency timeliness and completeness, but we have found a number of, of challenges there. You know, some examples, it's not always clear where a grant award is actually going. There's different information that different recipients put in or even what the award is about. And so it does make it hard to track, at least in an aggregate level, where's all this money going? How much is going to who? And that's really the goal of some of the laws that created USA Spending. We're speaking with Jeff Arkin. He's Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And what about the government's own ability to see into the sub-grantees and so forth? Because especially at the state level, we've seen how the money can get fraudulently used. And that's definitely a challenge. When an agency provides a grant, that grantee is responsible for reporting on what they're doing. But sometimes grantees will provide additional funding to a sub-grantee. We call that a sub-award. Funds pass through to a different entity. And there are rules there that the uh, the main grantee has to report on generally most of the awards that go to sub-awards. But we have found some problems with that. There are some sub-grants that don't meet the threshold of reporting. We found some other errors like duplicative awards or sub-awards that are larger than the amount of the actual grant, which can't happen mathematically. Uh, So we have been finding some problems with that. It's definitely an area that we are going to look into more uh, in the near future. Any other recommendations with respect to transparency and controls? I mean, you have recommendations agency by agency when you find something in their grant-making apparatus. But this is so widespread, almost every agency has at least some grant-making. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we do have some recommendations, in particular some to Congress in, in ways that they can change a lot to help both with the monitoring and the improper payment side of things and also the reporting aspect of it. You know, one example is uh, requiring inspectors general to evaluate their own agencies and how are they complying with some of the rules about uh, reporting information like we were talking about so the public can be aware uh, and Congress and members of Congress can be aware of what's actually being spent, when it's being spent, and where is that money going, and, and again, where it may be going after it goes to the main grantee. And one of the issues you've also raised in this latest kind of look-see is the capacity on the part of potential grantees That is the capacity to know how to get a grant or to know how to account for a grant. What is that whole issue? Yeah, there can be a number of capacity challenges that grantees or potential grantees can face. There are human capital capacity considerations. So smaller entities that don't often receive funding may not have the same institutional knowledge or awareness of grant processes, and they may not even know that grants are out there. Uh, you know, my name is on the GAO website as the person who does our grants work. And I get emails and calls from, you know, city managers of small towns who ask, where can I find out about grants that I can apply for, that my, my city can apply for, that we can take advantage of? The, the recently passed infrastructure law is an example of that. Well, I will get questions about where do I, you know, where do I go for this? And so that's just a knowledge issue that, isn't necessarily a concern for, say, the state of California or the city of Philadelphia, where they have capacity to find those grants. They probably have 500 full-time people in a place like California that do nothing but grant proposal writing. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, they do have staff for that. And, and a smaller entity, a nonprofit, a smaller uh, county or town just doesn't have the same level of resources. Right. And I guess if you are looking at it from the grantee standpoint, almost any problem you can imagine probably has a federal grant program connected to it. So it, part of it's just knowing how to match what you need with what's out there. Because at $1.2 trillion, there's grant money for everything. Yeah, there are an incredibly large number of grants, and it's hard to pin down an actual number, but it's, you know, from what we can tell in the 1,000 to 2,000 different type of grant programs, there's, you know, anywhere from 500,000 plus grants out there uh, at any given time, at least recently, based on some of the data we've seen. So there is a lot out there, and, and really just finding it can be a big part of the challenge for, for some of these smaller entities. Jeff Arkin is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thanks again, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW Colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children 
plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw... It was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, 
uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you've got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.